Good morning. I'm Jason. I'm one of the elders here, and I have a I have a newfound respect for Darren. So yeah, I've got just about enough wisdom and material to get up here and do this twice a year. Once in the summer and once around the holidays, but somehow Darren sneaked one by me and I found myself on the schedule this spring at the end of April and then again here at the end of June. And that's a little too close for me to really have anything great for you. So I've got a whole new respect for Darren and others like him who are able to do this every single week. But I think we've still got something decent to talk about today. So you know how there's certain phrases, words that have dual meanings depending on how they're used or the context or, or really how the person receiving them might actually hear them? We've got a couple of examples. So when we leave here after we're done here in anywhere from 20 to 80 minutes, <laughs> we're gonna get in the car and I'm gonna ask Jen, where do you wanna go to lunch? And she's gonna say, I don't care. Now you might think that those three words, I don't care, mean that she'd be fine with wherever we end up going to lunch. But what I have learned over the years is that it actually means there are one or two places that she really wants to go, and it's my job to decipher that and figure out where that is. I don't want to just pick on her. We have a bank account that we pay household stuff out of, like groceries and things of that nature. And so periodically throughout the month, I will tell Jen, hey, there's X amount of dollars in the household account. Now, what I mean by that is I would assume if you're using that account, you would want to know how much money's in it. And that's just common courtesy. I'm just being kind to let her know how much money is in there. She has told me that what she actually hears when I say that is, you have spent too much money out of this account. <clears throat> One of my first lessons when I learned how words can mean different things, uh, my dad and a friend of his were coaching a baseball team. And one of them was coaching third base and this kid came around second, and I don't know if his dad or, the, or his friend that was coaching third, but they were saying, go home, go home. And this kid thought he had suddenly done something wrong, so he stopped and started walking to the dugout and pouting, thinking that they were sending him to the house for messing something up instead of going home to score. So words can have different meanings. Today, what we're gonna look at are a couple of words that appear over and over in scripture, but God. And we're gonna look at two different connotations of those words. First, what it means in scripture, but we're gonna compare that to how we typically use those words in our interactions with God. So pray with me real quickly. Lord, thank you for this time together this morning. We just pray for your presence. We pray that you will reveal yourself to us in the words that are being shared today, and that we will learn who you are and what your purposes are for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, those two words, but God, they appear over and over and over again throughout Scripture. And when they appear, they always demonstrate God's faithfulness. When He shows up in our lives, when He fulfills His promises, when He performs miracles. But often, we use those words a little differently in our interaction with Him. Instead of using those words in a way that tells the story of God and who He is, we use those words as an internal struggle with God to try to get Him to do things in our lives that we want to be done, to try to get Him to change our circumstances. But God, if you would do this, 
but God, you don't understand what's going on here, let me tell you. So in the middle of difficult circumstances and bad things happening, when the scripture shows us, but God shows up, we use it as, but God, will you do this? Will you change this? Let me tell you how it's gonna be. So what's the story of our lives gonna be? Is it gonna be that internal struggle, but God, let's do things my way? Or is it gonna be the but God that we see in scripture? Where God's faithfulness is apparent in our story, even when we don't understand the why or the what's going on, God is glorified. So 2019, just frankly, has not been a very good or fun year. As a family, we've had some struggles in relationships with others. There's been things that have been said about us in the community. It's been an unusually trying time at work in my career and my profession. We've had a health situation in our family. And, you know, I have to, these things I talk about, I'm often not very good at applying in my life. So in the middle of this, what, what I have tended to do is spend my time talking to God about this stuff and saying, but God, why don't you do this? Why don't you change this circumstance? Why don't you do this? If you'll do this, then things will look this way. And there's a lot of stuff I'd like to change over the last six to 12 months. But what I am learning is that God has different purposes and perspective than I do. And God is faithful in his promises, even in the middle of difficult and trying circumstances. And so what I want to do is let my circumstances define my God and define my faith. But we put a quote in your bulletin. A guy named John Gordon said this. Don't let your circumstances alter your faith. Let your faith alter your circumstances. So today we're going to look at an example of this in the book of Habakkuk. And I promise you that is a sentence that I never thought I was going to say, that I was going to be talking about Habakkuk. The Old Testament, it, it's crazy and hard, and there's a lot of difficult stuff in there, so I try to just gravitate toward the New Testament because that's pretty simple and straightforward. But, you know, the Old Testament is great because it really, over and over again, book after book, is the story of God's faithfulness to his people. So we're going to look at that in Habakkuk today, and here's how much I, I knew about Habakkuk before I really dug into this. I don't even know how to pronounce it. So I googled this week how to pronounce Habakkuk, and the very first link was this audio recording that I clicked on, and this guy who sounded very sure of himself said, this is how you pronounce it. And he emphasized the first syllable and said, it's Habakkuk. Then I clicked on the second link right under that, and another guy who sounded just as sure, and he emphasized the second simple syllable and said, it's Habakkuk. So I have no idea how to pronounce it. I didn't go to Bible college, Darren did, so if you guys want to talk to him afterward and see which one's right, you can. I'm going to use one or both, and I may mix them up throughout the day. But here's what Habakkuk is about. It's a guy who questioned how God could let wicked people prosper and righteous people suffer. But ultimately, as he works through this with God, he's awed by God's response and God's story in the middle of this. So sometimes around here we talk about justice and mercy and how some people are wired more toward justice and some people are wired more toward mercy and we really ought to have the balance of the two. Well, Habakkuk is very, very much wired for justice. 
All right, so this is an examination of the injustices that Habakkuk sees in the world around him. And an example of a righteous person crying out to God to change these circumstances and to change this wickedness that he sees. And then God's response in the middle of that, which is to be patient, to be observant, to be steady in your faith, and that God's judgment will happen at the appointed time. His timing, not ours. And ultimately, as, as Habakkuk works through this, that allows him to rejoice in God's saving power, even while he's still struggling with the question of why evil is allowed to happen. So let's look at this. It, it, the background of this story is late 7th century BC. And this is before the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, the Babylonians were beginning to overtake the Assyrians and become the major power in the area. And God has shown Habakkuk what is going to happen a few decades later when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is struggling to accept this. And so we look in chapter 1, and he's asking, why do you let this happen? Why do you let the wicked go unpunished? In verse 2, Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed, and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so that justice has become perverted. This was 7th century B.C., but some of that sounds familiar. We can apply it no matter what time we live in. So you go on in chapter 1, and, and God responds to Habakkuk. And in verse 5, it says, The Lord replied, Look around at the nations, look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. I am raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the world and conquer other lands. They are notorious for their cruelty and they do whatever they like. And then God goes on in his response to describe what's going to happen and what they're going to do. And then we get to verse 12, and, and Habakkuk is struggling with this, and he asks God how he could use a wicked nation to carry out his purposes. He's having that in internal struggle, but God, why would you do that? But God, why would you let this happen? But God, why don't you do it this way? And here's what we see in verse 12. Habakkuk says, O Lord my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. O Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins, but you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? In verse 17, he says, Will you let them get away with this forever? Will they succeed forever in their heartless conquests? How many of you have these kind of interactions with God? And my favorite, first verse of chapter 2, Habakkuk says, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. I love that response because it's so human. All right, God, I've told you how this needs to be. This is what I've asked for. I'm sure you've heard me. Now I'm going to sit back and wait for you to do what I just said you should do. Telling God what needs to happen and expecting Him to do what we want. That's that, but God, I know better than you do. You don't understand what these people have done to me. You don't understand what these people have said. You don't understand how bad this is. You don't understand that if you would only do this, then things would be better. 
the end of chapter 2, or the rest of chapter 2, God responds again. And he makes it very clear to Habakkuk that this is going to happen. And then he explains why. And he enlists a number of things that he sees in his people. And he says to Habakkuk, haven't you noticed how my people are trusting in themselves rather than in me? And how they're putting their faith in their wealth and the things of the world. And how they're arrogant. And how they're never satisfied with the things I've provided them. And how they're dishonest. In verse 18, God says to Habakkuk, What good is an idol carved by man or a cast image that deceives you? How foolish to trust in your own creation. So he makes it clear that while he disapproves of wickedness, he will use things to carry out his purposes because he is working all things together for our good. And so I want to be clear. It's okay to wrestle with God about things. It's okay to question things. It's okay to, I think, to express your feelings and to express your anger to God. I think he created us that way. And we see plenty of examples of that in Scripture. To share with God your feelings and your struggles and your concerns. But at some point, that turns unhealthy. And I think that list that God gave at the end of chapter 2 in Habakkuk tells us when that is, when we start trying to do things ourselves and trusting in ourselves and trusting in the things of the world and our wealth here rather than in him and being arrogant and not being thankful for the things we have. So we have to recognize when we get to that point and refusing to accept what we don't understand, trying to control our own circumstances and change our circumstances, stop trusting in God because things aren't turning out the way we would like. Best example of this that I can find in Scripture is Judas. So we talked a minute ago about justice and mercy and how people are wired typically one way or the other. And I'm, I'm more toward mercy. My wife is more toward justice. So I, can, I expect that when we're done here, she's going to say, I can't believe you even have mercy for Judas. But I, I do. Because he gets a bad rap, and, and, and rightly so. But I, I, don't, I don't think he was just this evil person. Um, I think, I mean, he, he followed Jesus around for three years. He was one of the chosen 12 disciples. He saw all these things that Jesus did. He saw the miracles. I think he knew who Jesus was as the Son of God. Problem is that Judas had his own view and perspective of what Jesus came to do. And when he didn't see that happening the way he thought it should, and and his view and perspective was a worldly and earthly perspective, he thought that Jesus was going to free them from the Romans and and establish the kingdom here on earth right now and, and free them of the oppression that they had been under. He didn't have the eternal perspective that that Jesus had. And so when he didn't see things happening the way they were, he decided to take things and take matters into his own hands. And I think that he thought by betraying Jesus, that would be the trigger or the catalyst to cause Jesus and his followers to rise up and fight against the Romans and take care of things and do things the way that Jesus thought they would do. But at some point, we have to accept that God's purposes and his perspective are not ours. 
and they are different than ours, and they are better than ours. And we have to be comfortable and content and hopeful despite our struggles and our circumstances and despite the evil and the wickedness that we may see thriving around us. So we see this in the last chapter of Habakkuk, in chapter 3, where Habakkuk declares his faith in God despite the certainty of the future calamity that's coming. Habakkuk finally gets it. And he says this in verse 2. He says, I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by, and in your anger, remember your mercy. I see God moving across the deserts from Edom, the Holy One coming from Mount Paran. His brilliant splendor fills the heavens, and the earth is filled with His praise. His coming is as brilliant as the sunrise. Rays of light flash from His hands where His awesome power is hidden. And he goes on in the next verses to describe who God is. And then in verse 16, he says, I will wait quietly for the coming day when disaster will strike the people who invade us. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, and there are no grapes on the vines. Even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the, flock, the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. So Habakkuk finally realizes that his perspective is more limited than God's, and he chooses to trust that God's, God's ways are good. Now, it's really important to note right here that absolutely nothing changed about Habakkuk's circumstances. God did not change his mind. He did not tell him, okay, I hear you. The Babylonians won't destroy you after all. All the things that Habakkuk was worried and concerned about are still happening and are still going to happen. But he recognized that the heart of God is good, and he saw the hope and the salvation of God even in the middle of wickedness thriving around him. So throughout Scripture, we see what Habakkuk finally understood. We see the but God that shows the heart of God. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is seeing his brothers after years and years and after they had sold him into slavery and he'd been away from his family all this time. And he tells them, these people who had done evil to him, he said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In Genesis chapter 20, when Abraham had given his wife Sarah to Abimelech, it says, but God intervened and came to Abimelech in a dream, telling him that he was as good as a dead man since Sarah was married. In Genesis chapter 41, Joseph was unable to give Pharaoh the interpretations of his dreams, but it says, but God could and did deliver those interpretations. In Genesis 45, there was a famine, but God sent Joseph ahead of his family to save the lives of many people. In Acts chapter 2, we see the phrase again where it says Jesus was put to death, but God raised him from the dead. In Romans chapter 5, as it applies to us, we were still sinners, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
To understand these two words, but God, is to understand the gospel. It appears hundreds of times in Scripture. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, If you understand those two words, but God, they will save your soul. If you recall them daily and live by them, they will transform your life completely. You guys heard from the Wadsworths earlier today, and they, they are an inspiration to all of us in how they live their life and how they say yes to God. And, and I found an illustration for this sermon in a conversation we were having with them when they first found out that they weren't going to get their visas renewed a few weeks ago. Several of us were sitting in my office talking, just talking through options. And um, in the middle of tears, Leanne said, you know, I just want to control the situation, but then there's God. Because she gets it that in our everyday lives, in the middle of difficulties and struggles, but God means something. There's a guy named Herbert Cooper that wrote an entire book about this. It's called But God. And, and he goes through chapter by chapter of the different ways that God shows up and changes things. And he says, we wander, but God finds us. We are wounded, but God heals. We are insecure, but God gives us confidence. We search for an identity, but God gives us purpose. We lose our way, but God finds us. We seek relationships, but God gives us divine connection. We are tempted, but God delivers us. We don't have enough, but God provides for us. We are bound, but God sets us free. We see the impossible, but God makes all things possible. So as Christians, we all have a but God moment, hopefully, hopefully many but God moments throughout our journey. And but God is the story for all of us. And but God gives us purpose. It shows us that so that or that in order that for us to live our lives by. Because we were redeemed not just from something, but to something. Not just from our past, but so that we might love and glorify and proclaim Christ to others. Peter puts it this way in 2, chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this, in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What he's saying is, but God changes everything and creates purpose for us. Tattered, torn, scattered, scorned, thrusted into chaos the day I was born. Just a misfit, destined to be a statistic. Shattered, but what does it matter? They want me to be in sync with the pattern of a victim perpetually positioned in a self-envisioned prison, frozen, imprisoned by our past. We don't ever get the present tense. It's evident we are ships with no sail to catch the wind. And we heard about God, but don't think he could let us in. Because our whole life, the world shut us out. 
And love is foreign towards us We don't understand so we doubt But God changes everything The pain it settles and we don't remain As the abused adolescent or confused With depression and used as a weapon Of self-destruction His grace conducts a better scene Because God changes everything Hurt to healing, shame to salvation They said victory is something we would never see But God changes everything God changes everything, God gives us purpose And sometimes we get to see the results of it here Sometimes we don't The ultimate but God is in the phrase, O death, where is thy sting? See, we may get to experience but God here, but even if we don't, we know that it's coming because of an empty tomb and the hope that we have in that. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5, it says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us need to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. And then here it is in verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy, and He loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Things that are impossible, but God makes them possible. One of the ultimate but God stories in the Bible is in John chapter 11, and it's the story of Lazarus. So Lazarus is sick, and his family sends a message to Jesus saying that he's sick and asking him to come back. And Jesus decided to stay where he was for a couple of more days. And the place where Lazarus was is where Jesus had been previously, and, and while he was there just days earlier, people had tried to stone Jesus and tried to kill him. So when the family of Lazarus requests that Jesus go back, the rest of the disciples are thinking, yeah, why would we do that? We just left there and we saw what happened. So Jesus waits a couple days, and during that time period, Lazarus dies. And then Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going back. And he says, for now you will really believe. Because he has a perspective of the situation that the others don't have. The disciples don't have it. Lazarus' family doesn't have it. And, and Thomas, in verse 16, he says, when Jesus tells him he's going back, Thomas says to the other disciples, well, let's go too so we can die with him. I love Thomas. I can relate to him so much. And I love how these little nuggets are thrown in here for entertainment, I think. So, you know, Thomas is just assuming, well, we saw what happened, so we're going to follow this guy back to death. Anyway, they go. So Jesus arrives there. By the time he arrives, Lazarus has now been in the grave for four days. And the first person that comes is Lazarus' sister, Martha. In verse 20 of chapter 11 in John, it says, When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. Mary stayed at the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then later, Mary comes to meet Jesus. And in verse 32, we see the same thing from Mary. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But God, if only you had done this, then I wouldn't be dealing with the grief for the circumstances I'm dealing with right now. 
In verse 40, Jesus responds, Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside, and then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. God's ways and purposes are different than ours. The family of Lazarus had the internal struggle of but God. But God, had only you been here, this wouldn't have happened. And then Jesus showed them the but God that shows us the heart of God and the purposes of God and the perspective of God. Now, for most of us, we're probably not going to experience the type of resurrection that Lazarus experienced, but we will experience a resurrection. We will have our very own death but God moment. This time I'll ask the altar team to come forward and the worship team to come back on stage. In 2007... I had a cousin who was diagnosed with brain cancer. At the time, she was about 26, and she fought this struggle for a couple of years. And during that period of time, her mom, my aunt, she kept a, a blog or an online journal so she could communicate to family and friends what was going on with the treatment and the care and, and where Jessica was in this battle. During that period of time, she got married to this great guy uh, who married her in the middle of this fight. And then in June of 2009, Jessica died. And a phrase we use a lot when this happens to someone is, she lost her battle with cancer. But on that blog or that online journal that my aunt was keeping, she wrote something on the day Jessica died that I don't know that I've ever shared with her how impactful and meaningful it was for me to see her write this, but, but she wrote something along the lines of, we have been praying for two years for Jessica to have victory over this disease, and today she had her victory over this disease. Because what that meant is in the middle of unimaginable heartache and pain and grief, she was saying, but God. She may have died, but God, and she has victory because of that. So, my prayer is that may the story of our lives be this. No matter what has happened, no matter what is happening, and no matter what may happen in the future, but God.